good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, open them to Romans chapter 9. We'll deal primarily today with verses 6 through 13. With really, we'll hold verse 13 really until next week to spend more time on it. But before we get there, I do want to jump back in the book. Um, Earlier on in the book of Romans, um, there is a really unique section of Scripture that I think Paul begins to elaborate on. Then he begins to make his way into his primary argument, which is essentially to lay out the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Really from chapter 3, verses 19 and following, we have that all the way to where we sit today. But in this section of Scripture, in Romans chapter 3, there is this little section that I'd like to read to you really quickly. And it says this, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And I want to pay very close attention to verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And here is where we find ourselves today. We come to what many have come to call this section of scripture, the justification of God. And what we mean by that is not the justification of God as we have examined really in verse in chapter 5 through chapter 8. We're not talking about the justification that he gives to a particular people. Instead, we are really asking the question, is God just in his justification? Does God have the right to save the way that he has saved? Does God have the right to save some, to make some a particular people and not others? Does God have the right to do this? Is God justified in the salvation that he has provided? And I think that every single one of us in the midst of just this simple question have heard the objections from carnal men. Have you not not heard men assault the Godhood of God? Have you not heard him wage war on God's right to be God in the world? And dear saint, what we find ourselves dealing with this particular day is the justification of God in the sense that his word has indeed never fallen. It has never failed, nor will it ever fail. And even more so than that, as we press on further, not only has his word never failed, his promises in and of themselves that he actually brings to fruition are perfectly in in line with his goodness. Dear saint, why we come to this particular text, and I'm convinced the reason that chapter nine can be so frustrating to so many is because it answers all objections that they might have to the justification that God has provided for a particular people. It is the reason that this section of scripture all the way through chapter 11 is commonly referred to as the justification of God. It is the justification, as it were, of his right to save as he chooses. And today we come to the very first objection. And before we get there, let's just spend time reading the text. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1, we'll make our way through verse 13 this morning. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. 
Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this section of scripture hearing all of these various objections. Lord, we do not pretend to come to your defense as people who are needed. No, Lord, we know that you are in and of yourself your own defense. Your goodness flows from you in every single one of your actions. And yet, Lord, you have inspired the apostle to write such a section to give a mighty, wonderful defense to the supremacy of our God. And so, Lord, I ask you, would you help us this day to grow all the more in confidence that the word of God has not failed. Lord, may it be that as we look back at all the ways you have fulfilled your promises, Lord, may we look forward to all the ways that you will. Lord, we have an absolute confidence as uh, people bought by the blood of Jesus that we will never be separated from the love of God. Lord, may we grow in confidence. We have an absolute confidence that we have been justified through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Would you grow us in that confidence? And Lord, would you anchor that confidence in the appropriate place? Would you anchor that confidence in the reality that you have spoken and you're saying as you're doing? And so, Father, I ask this day, would you help us? Help us to understand, help us to behold. And Lord, at the end of all of this, may it be that we come humbly and sit under the promises of God and find our rest there. It is the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, perhaps it is that you think to yourself, what do you mean that this is about the justification of God? I want to pay very close attention to verse 6 because this is really, I would argue, the theme actually of all of Romans chapter 9. While most certainly there is much here in Romans chapter 9 that people will go to and go to rather quickly and particularly to give, the, to give a defense of the doctrine of unconditional election, rightly so. But here in verse 6, there is a really important phrase that we must pay very close attention to and ask a question, a, a rather important question, is how did we get here? Why is Paul writing this particular phrase? Why is he writing verse 6? And verse 6 simply, simply says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. You understand that the reason that Paul would make such a statement is because there be people inside of the congregation of the Romans who are beginning to ask the question all throughout the book of Romans. There is this statement, is there not? At the end of every thought, at the end of every argument, Paul immediately begins to combat any false presupposition that might arise from his previous argument. So for instance, the reason that we end Romans 5 and lean into chapter 6 with what, should, what then shall we say? Shall we go on seeing that grace may increase? Is because there are some people in the midst of the congregation who say, well, if it's all of grace then I'll go on sinning. He immediately begins to combat this false idea, this misconception of everything that he has just laid out. And here in verse six, he does the very same thing. 
And it is the very same thing, assuming that we have arrived at the very same conclusion that he has. And the very same conclusion, the questions that I think are beginning to be asked based upon verses one through five are this. First, why don't our kinsmen according to the flesh believe? I mean, consider the gravity of this statement. You're looking at the Roman church, majority of which is likely Jewish, and they're thinking and they're looking at the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. They've concluded soaring through Romans 8 and they're hearing Paul's anguish, his longing to see his kinsmen according to the flesh. He's there longing for them to believe the same thing that they have believed. They are longing for them, I would argue, according to verse five, to believe that which is the conclusion, the crescendo of all the promises of God. That is, look at verse five, the end, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And the Jews are wondering, the Christian Jews, the true ones, are looking around and they're wondering why so many of their kinsmen, according to the flesh, have not believed on the Christ. And then they perhaps progress in their thinking. They're considering, well, if they haven't, if my kinsmen, according to the flesh, have not believed, does that mean that the promises of God have failed? Does that mean that God has not been faithful to execute all that he has done? And if we were to just pause here for a moment, as I imagine that many in the room would have, they would have gone back and considered all the promises of God in the Old Testament. Dear saints, even looking back up to Paul's assessment in verse four, they are Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. Does this not in and of itself clarify that God is faithful to his promises? And even more so than that, in each of those things, we simply have shadows, shadows that were perfectly fulfilled by our faithful God in the man Christ Jesus. And so they look around and they see these promises given to a national people and they say, well, if the promise was given to a national people and the spiritual people then, or this national people do not lay hold of the spiritual realities, is God faithless? Has his word failed? And then perhaps going forward, and I think perhaps most appropriately, the natural conclusion to the assumption that God has not been faithful to his word in the Old Testament leads us to ask the question, can we take to the bank the reality that nothing will separate us from the love of God? If he failed, if he did not do what he promised, then how can we now on the other side of Romans 8 and all of its wonder, how can we then go and have this infinite resounding confidence and assurance that nothing will separate us from the love of God if he failed in his promises in the Old Testament? Now, before we get in to Paul's answer, and he has a rather excellent one, I think we do well to sit here a moment because I want you to understand, I mean, really, let's just have a moment where we think through the reality of this. If God's word has failed, we will not meet next week. There's no reason for us to gather. There is no confidence that we should have. I have absolutely no reason to stand here. I am a foolish man. But dear saint, this is the beauty of Paul's argument. You know, it is interesting, isn't it? That men who don't have answers tend to dodge questions. But the ones who do, the ones who do have an excellent confidence and absolute assurance in all that God has promised them, they lean into these questions. As a matter of fact, Paul supplies it. He says, let's lean in for a minute. You have this question, you wonder about the surety of God's word, fine, let's lean in. He knows, dear saint, as we all should, he knows that we have an infallible ground to rest on. 
And so he leans in. So let's do that, shall we? Let's ask the question, has God failed? And hear Paul's answer, a resounding no. And we'll conclude this morning by looking back at verse six. But I wanna hear his answer. The very first thing that the apostle does here is he assaults, and actually reaching back into Romans chapter two, we'll pick up an argument there. He assaults the concept, or perhaps better yet, the misconception that God's promises, in particularly in the man Christ Jesus, were exclusive and also expansive to all and only ethnic Israel. I want you to hear the language that we have in verse six. Listen to what it says. So, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, then he instantly launches into his primary argument, but not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, those are strong words. And you can imagine, even in the room, those who truly have trusted in Christ, those who are true Israel, begin to recoil at this concept, but Paul has already braced them for it. And if you'll turn in your Bibles back to Romans chapter two, I wanna spend just a moment there. Because the simple phrase, not all Israel is of Israel, or forgive me, backwards, not all who are of Israel are truly Israel. Because Paul has actually already jumped into this argument. And that, that's the very argument that leads us into that section of scripture that I read as we began this morning. What is his argument? His argument is first and foremost, rooted in Romans chapter two, verse 28. Not all who are of Israel are truly Israel. And he clarifies this in Romans two twenty-eight. This is what it says. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Let's just pause. Consider what he has just done. If you're Paul's to consider the reality that he just laid out for them, he is looking at a people, his own people, by the way, the same people that he has anguish in his heart and a longing to see them converted. He has explicitly stated that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, meaning that if you only are a Jew outwardly and nothing inward has occurred, then you have no right to claim the title. That is an astonishing statement. I mean, all these men are beginning to look at their fleshly nature and we'll see them continue to disarm this argument. And as they're looking in at themselves, they're saying, well, I'm a Jew and I'm a Jew according to the flesh. That is outwardly. Paul says, if it's only outward, you don't have it. And so he goes on to say, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So the very first thing he does in this very simple statement in Romans chapter nine is he clarifies the statement that he made in Romans chapter two. And then even in Romans chapter two, as he continues his argument, he, he clarifies all the more that Israel's faithlessness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. In this particular circumstance, the people that he is looking at are those who would claim an outward right to Christ with no inward change. They say, no, he, he should belong to me. Well, you've rejected him. He arrived and it's quite clear in John chapter one, is it not? He came to his own and his own people rejected him. They cast him out. They did not desire him. And here going on a bit further, not only is the concept, not all Israel are Israel, or here in Romans 2.28, not all Jews are Jews, but going forward, not all circumcision is circumcision. If you're considering the outward appearance, what is that that Israel would boast in most? Would it not be their lineage first and foremost? Would it not be the reality that they could say that I come from the line of Abraham? And perhaps it is that they would even continue and they would say, I am of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would claim all of those patriarchs while rejecting the promised offspring. And going further, they would claim not only their identity nationally based upon their lineage, but then they would claim this outward mark, which Paul absolutely dismantles in Romans 2. 
Just read it again to you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, listen to this, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Guess what he just did? He literally uncircumcised every Jew in the room because they have all broken the law. Every single one of them no longer have any right to truly boast. As he goes on to clarify, he even extends this, I think rather interestingly. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Do you see how he's looking at this argument and saying, you've missed the spiritual realities attached to this. You've anchored all of your identity. You've anchored all of your understanding in a fleshly concept and you've missed the reality beyond it. You've skipped the spiritual And going forward, it says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Again, listen to the simple phrase, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Now, all of that to say, I'm convinced that what you have in Paul's introductory statement, his first argument inside of Romans 9, is not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and he has already laid this argument bare. You can claim that you are a descendant of Abraham, as we'll look at here in a moment. You can claim that you are a Jew of the Jews. You can claim that you have a circumcision, and this is the means by which the promise should come to you. But the promises have never been according to the flesh. Never have they ever been according to the flesh. And so the simple way to say it is, how can we identify one who is truly Israel? How can we identify, as it were, the Israel inside of Israel? The answer is simple. True Israel are those who are circumcised of the heart by the Spirit. This is the mark of true Israel. This is the mark that all the promises of God ultimately flow from and into these individuals that God has given this mark to. Circumcision by the heart, by the Spirit. Of the heart, by the Spirit. Now, that's what it means. I'm convinced as we look at this of what it means to say not all Israel is Israel, but we need to understand who is the true Israel there. And then going forward, there is the secondary argument. So in verse six, it goes on to say, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. We want to pay close attention to this too because Paul has actually already laid out this argument as well. So what does it mean that not all offspring of Abraham are, as it were, children of Abraham? Some of these seem contradictory, don't they? As a matter of fact, if we make our way through the remainder of this, you'll see that not all Israel is Israel. Not all children of Abraham uh, are, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Then again, it says not all children of the flesh are children of God or children of promise or children of the true offspring. And he's making rather important and precise distinctions. And what he is distinguishing is flesh from spirit. He is distinguishing physical fleshly realities from the spiritual realities in which all these promises actually find their end. And so as he addresses them, first we must understand that physical descent from Abraham does not guarantee participation in the promise and blessing. It does not, it has not. Dear saint, it has not ever meant that you are guaranteed to participate in the promise and the blessing. If we turn our attention back to Romans chapter four, what are the promises and the blessing? The promises and the blessing are first and foremost that there will be righteousness that flows from faith and from faith alone. In particularly, if you look at verse seven of chapter four, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the promise and the blessing and they have never come according to the flesh. Notice what it says. 
in Romans chapter 4, 9 through 12. Listen to how it is that we can identify a true son of Abraham. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, verse 9, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received a sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Listen to this phrase. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. It's an interesting category to develop, is it not? Then furthermore, It says, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely, I want you to hear this category. We miss this word sometimes. So certainly he is the physical, fleshly father of all of national or ethnic Israel. But here there seems to be a rather unique fatherhood of Abraham anchored in a circumcision that is of the spirit and not of the flesh. Listen, So the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, here's the parenthetical statement, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Meaning that true children of Abraham are children of faith. They believe the way that Abraham believed, meaning that they believed God and in their belief of God, he counts it to them as righteousness. This is the seal. This is the mark of what it means to be a child of Abraham. Now, these are important distinctions as we'll see as we progress forward through the book of Romans. But to simply summarize, I think a a simple way to say this is to be true Israel in the midst of a national Israel is that you are not circumcised in flesh only, but you are circumcised of the heart by the spirit. Secondly, to be a true son of Abraham, the true sons of Abraham have righteousness by faith, trusting that the promises of God flow through grace. This is the mark of what it means to be a child of Abraham, that we have trusted in God, that as he has promised, as he has given his word, perhaps even going back to verse six, that we know the word of God has not failed. We have an absolute assurance and confidence. And thus, I would say from this in Romans chapter four, this this section from Romans chapter four, and this very one, that we as Christians have a great right to say, we are children of Abraham according to faith. We have believed the very same thing that he has believed. Now, perhaps it is that you find offense at this. Perhaps it is that you think, as I think reasonably so, and it's the reason I would argue that Romans 9 can be such a frustration to so many is because he is laying out the distinction between what is physical and what is spiritual. Can we listen for a moment to what our Lord has to say in regard to this? Jesus has a rather interesting encounter. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 8 would be a great place to go to examine this concept. Because some people would perhaps say that Paul here is being anti-Semitic that he is essentially excommunicating the Jewish people from what is rightly theirs. But I want to show you what our Lord actually does in a very similar circumstance. So in John chapter eight, I wanna conclude this really in verse 34 through 38, and then we'll launch into the primary argument. So in verse 34, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not maintain or does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. It's very important language. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. So this is Jesus saying that the father 
God the Father is his father. And then the Pharisees respond in verse 39. I want to pay close attention to the simple phrase that's actually found in verse 36. He says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham. And then in verse 39, the Pharisees retort. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Listen to what Jesus says to them. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. What did Jesus just tell them? You may be his offspring, but you are not his children. Going further and perhaps even more severe. He goes on in this argument, not only to look at the Pharisees. And for some reason, we look at the Pharisees and we assume that they're like some particular class or different class of Jew. And we almost don't even associate them with the Jewish people. But brothers and sisters, the Pharisees were the chief, as it were, of the Jewish people. They were the higher office, if you will. And Jesus looks at them, and these would be the people that all the laymen, if you would, would look to and admire and say, I want to be like them. And Jesus looks at them and says, Abraham is not your father. You may be his offspring, but you are not his children. And then he goes even further in verse 42, and he says this, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So just in these few verses here, brothers and sisters, what you actually have is Jesus looking at the Pharisees, those who the majority of Jewish people thought that they understood the law perfectly, that they really, really got it. And Jesus looks back at them and says, you know what? You are offspring of Abraham, but you are not his children because you have not believed. And even further than that, he goes and just says, God is not your father. And in the conclusion of this argument, where he essentially removes the fathers that they would claim, he then ascribes to them their appropriate one or the one that is most true and real. In verse 44, listen to what he says. You are of your father, the devil. Stern words. Sobering words. Why were they of their father, the devil? Because they had not believed like Abraham believed. They had not trusted in the promises of God. They were not, as it were, true Israel. They had every right to claim that they were offspring of Abraham, but they had no right to claim him as father. Only those who are made righteous by faith and by faith alone have that right. And so Jesus, I think, lays this out rather clearly for us. And I'm convinced that if we were to look at this in any other capacity, we would have to do violence to Jesus's interpretation of what it means to be a true Jew. The idea that he would look at these people and say that you are not of your father, Abraham. You are not of your father, God. You are a son of the devil is an incredible statement that I think gives great clarity. And then back in our text, there is an illustration laid out for us. And this illustration is a rather interesting one. I think a rather important one. And it's the illustration essentially between Isaac and Ishmael. Let's turn our attention back to Romans chapter nine for a moment. It says this in verse seven, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Going on in verse eight, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. The direct contrast that's laid out here is the distinction between Isaac and Ishmael. Can we consider that for a moment? Let's consider Ishmael. We'll do it based upon birth order according to the flesh, shall we? Ishmael, for all intents and purposes, had natural right as a child, did he not? Is Abraham not his father? 
And then even further than that, if we go, if we understand the whole sequence that's laid out, not only is Ishmael have natural right as a child, he also has received the sign of circumcision. He's been given the mark that essentially makes him of Abraham. He has every right in these two capacities. But one thing that is most interesting about the birth of Ishmael is Ishmael was for all intents and purposes born according to the flesh. Was this not Abraham laboring to bring about the promises of God by the flesh? It most certainly was. We find in the New Testament, Peter saying, Lord, today will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Longing for violence? Longing for it to be taken according to the flesh, not looking at spiritual realities, but looking for physical things that would be brought to fruition? And here you see Ishmael being of natural right, given the mark of circumcision, but the major distinction is he is not the child of promise. The covenant does not belong to him in the same way that it does to Isaac. This distinction is so important because I want you to see this. The argument is that because I'm of Abraham, I deserve all of this. Brothers and sisters, Ishmael was of Abraham. These promises were given to Isaac. These promises were given for this individual offspring. That's the reason that twice, twice in this, in this section, this covenant, this moment is recalled in quotes. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then again in verse nine, for this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now let's consider Isaac for a moment. The major distinction, they have great similarities. First, Isaac had natural right as a child, did he not? Isaac was truly of his father Abraham in every sense of the word, just like Ishmael was to some degree. Secondly, Isaac was given the mark of circumcision. They had these common marks, did they not? They certainly for external purposes were identified as, according to the flesh, both children of Abraham, offspring of Abraham. The major distinction here, dear saint, is that Abraham or Isaac was born not of the flesh, but according to the promise. Isaac was truly the offspring of Abraham because he was the offspring of promise. And so the distinction here is that God's promises are never brought to fruition according to the flesh. Now, here's the issue with that. Our natural inclination is to bring about all the promises of God according to the flesh. We want to do this. We want to have some hand. We want to have a righteousness, as we'll go on in Romans chapter 10, according to the law. We want to do, we want to work, we want to labor, we want to bring about the promises of God through fleshly, man-made labor. And God said it has never, it has never been this way. Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac was the impossibility. And yet, by the promises of God, Isaac comes. And as Isaac comes, I want to hear, going back to verse 6 for a moment, does the word of God fail? Look at verse 9 again, can we? For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. <laughs> How could you even believe that? Sarah is ancient. Never has born a child barren. And then God comes, speaks a word, and they say, all right, we believe you. But even there, you have doubt, do you not? Is Sarah not laughing at the concept? Is she not convinced this is an impossibility? How can this be brought about? What is she thinking about? What lens is she looking at this through? not of the spirit, of the flesh. 
And so as you consider this, dear saint, I want you to see even this simple phrase in verse 9, and actually again later on in verse 13 when it says, she was told, this is the word of God again demonstrated, the older will serve the younger. Did that not come to fruition? Did all the word of God, did all that he promised, did all that he said actually come to fruition? And if you pay close attention, if you make your way through Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, what you will see is an uptick in Old Testament allusions. I am convinced because Paul is saying, let's lean in to all those promises. Let me show you how they actually come to fruition. Again, demonstrating the reality that the word of God does not fall. It does not fail. It has never, it will never. And so he leans in again and he says, no, Isaac is the child of promise. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So that leads us to go back to our original question. How has the word of God not failed? Have the promises not made their way to who God promised them to? And the answer, dear saint, is a resounding no. All of his promises have made them to who he promised them to. They have all grasped them. Can I lay this out to you again? Romans 4, 13 through 16. I'm gonna read a chunk here because I want you to get the whole gist. We've already read a little bit of it, but let's read a little bit more. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, if it's those who bring it about according to the flesh, faith is null and the promise is void. If you go about grasping the promises of God by your own might, the promises of God become null and void. And then going further, verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why, listen to this, this is why it depends upon faith in order that the promise, this is so key, may rest on grace and be guaranteed, listen to this, guaranteed to all his offspring. Dear saint, all those who have faith in the promised Messiah, those are the ones that are his true offspring. And all those promises flow to them by the grace of God in Christ. And they receive them, every single one of them has or will receive them. It is not based upon the flesh. It is not through Ishmael. It is through Isaac. It is not through those who have any claim of fleshly right. Instead, it is those who have a spiritual claim based upon faith. These are the children of God. Going on again, pay attention to verse eight. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What promise? Is he speaking of? I mean, we work through this and I agree with most commentators that verse six is not dealing with the whole corpus of God's word. Instead, it's dealing with particular promises as he elaborates on from verse six and following. What promise is he, is he considering? Well, I'm convinced the promise that he's considering is Genesis chapter 15, verses five through six. This is one of the first promises and it's the promise that he's elaborated on again and again in this particular section of scripture. Let's just read this for a moment. Genesis 15, five through six. And he brought him outside, this speaking of Abraham, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. When Abraham looked up, if we were to be able to articulate or to see or to behold the positions, the ethnicities of those people, of those offspring, of what nationality would they be? Would they be all ethnic Israel? Is that what Abraham saw? Was Abraham looking up at just one particular people? 
No, dear saint, actually going on, it says that he will be the father of many nations. That what you ultimately see here is not a demonstration of an ethnic people born of him. Instead, I think quite clearly, according to Romans chapter 4, that this is those, this picture, this offspring that he is considering the multitude of them are all those who will possess the very same faith that he does. These are the children according to the promise. These are the ones who will have and possess a faith like Abraham. These are the ones who are given all of the promises of God. John Murray says it this way, and I think appropriately, and I think this is dealing with particularly the promise of eternal salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says this, the purpose of this distinction is to show that the covenantal promises of God did not have respect to Israel after the flesh, but to this true Israel. And that therefore the unbelief and rejection of ethnic Israel as a whole in no way interfered with the fulfillment of God's covenant purposes and promises. The word of God therefore has not been violated. God's promises are coming to pass. They are coming to fruition. All of those children that they look up, that Abraham saw, will actually gain the wonderful righteousness of Christ through faith and through faith alone. Not a single one of them will miss the promise of God. They will all have it. And then he lays this out again. And I want to go back to verse nine for just a moment in kind of consideration of the flow of the argument. The promise of God, I am convinced, the simple point of this verse being included here is to say that the purposes of God always do come to pass. If you think about the moment, if you think about the moment of Sarah sitting there, we're a year out, meaning they have not conceived yet. It is not as though God is looking in, doing some type of ultrasound and understanding that Isaac has already been conceived. Instead, he comes months before conception, promising that from this barren woman will actually come an offspring. And through that offspring, all all Abraham's offspring will ultimately be counted. And here what you have is God promising something that seems to be totally impossible and then brings it to fruition. And that's simply to say this, Isaac came despite its impossibility. All the offspring of God, all those who Abraham saw in the stars or in the sand of the seashore, that, those offspring will ultimately come to fruition. And it is, hear me, an impossible promise for someone who is not God. It is an absolute insanity. I mean, consider for a moment, He is looking up and measuring. I mean, he's promising something that is outlandish. But the word of God does not fall. Instead, it comes to fruition. And it comes to fruition despite the fact that we would say it is an impossibility, but nothing, as it were, is impossible with God. And I think perhaps a simple way to say it is Isaac came because of God's promise. Isaac was born because God promised. Isaac was born because God had an intention and a plan. And so it is with every saint of God. You are born because God promised that you would be. And I'm not speaking of a natural birth here. I'm speaking of the spiritual birth here. You experience the new birth that Nicodemus should have known about in John chapter 3 because God promised that you would experience the new birth. God promised that there would be a multitude without number that would be of the faith of Abraham. And here we sit, I mean, consider the reality of this. Here we sit as true children of Abraham, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, because we have believed on the promised Messiah. We have believed God. Now, in summary, I would say, before we go on to this next phrase, in summary, I would say this, that the conclusion of Paul's argument in regard to has the word of God fallen, he says, no. It seems as though you have misunderstood the promise of God in regard to salvation. 
It is not a fleshly and physical promise. It is a spiritual reality that will come to fruition. And even amidst of this, they are seeing it come to fruition. And we'll see later on how God will ultimately build this out, really, as we look at verses 19 all the way through chapter 11. We'll see how he builds this people, which I would say is simply the church of God. But then I think to go a bit further, the word of God has not failed simply because God's promises are actually coming to fruition. There are people of Abraham that are experiencing and enjoying all the spiritual promises of God. And then going forward, there's a simple question that I think must be asked. Well, what determines the distinction between someone who is of the promise and someone who is not? I mean, I think that really is where we're going here. The whole purpose of Romans 9 actually is to continue to build out the justification of God. And here in this particular text, it's laying out his right to elect, his right to choose. And so let's pay close attention to that. So he builds out the first to say that God has right to select Isaac over Ishmael and God has right to choose the children that are spiritual over the children of the flesh. And then he goes forward and gives perhaps the best illustration possible from verses 10 and following. So he lays out the argument from the perspective of Isaac and Ishmael, and then he leans into perhaps the argument between Jacob and Esau. Let's consider for a minute. I'm convinced that what you have here is an illustration of elimination. What I mean by that is the illustration is actually doing one great thing, two great things really, confirming his purpose of election and then eliminating all things that we base election upon. Because we, we do this, don't we? We pick someone and think about you choosing who you are going to marry. There are certain attributes that individual has and you say, yeah, I want that one, Right? But what you see in this illustration between Esau and Jacob is an elimination of everything that man would use ultimately to choose who would be chosen, as it were. And so let's look at verse 10. It says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What is the first thing eliminated? The first thing eliminated is actually physical descent. Notice what it says. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. It is interesting that he chooses twins, isn't it? Because his purpose of election is quite clearly laid out here, is it not? They have the same mother. They have the same father. They spent the very same time in the womb. And here you have God say that these children were born. Their their descent is the same. God's election is not based upon that. Going back up to our previous text, God's election of spiritual Israel and national Israel is not based upon physical descent. And so we progress. So first we must say that God's election, as it says in verse 11, God's purpose of election might continue, is not rooted in who their mother and father is. Familial bonds do not secure the calling of God, which has great implications for the church today. It's the reason that we're credo Baptist, by the way. From there... What we ultimately have is the familial bonds do not secure the calling of God. This does not actually say because I am of this lineage that I have every right to all of this. That's immediately cast out. And then going forward, perhaps what we would normally conclude is the primary reason of God's election is actually completely destroyed in this verse. In verse 10, it says, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our, father, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Is that not the normative place where we base God's purpose of election in one who has done either good or bad? 
Brothers and sisters, God's purpose and calling, God's election that he, that he does to bring people to salvation is not rooted in anything outside of himself. That's the primary argument here. And let's just consider for a moment that he has not done anything good. I consider that whenever I elect anything, I am always considering the merits of the one that I elect. It is not so with God. Your good works, your labors, certainly not if we consider the illustration given to us, Jacob's labors, did not merit or woo God to himself. Not by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, if I were to run through the narrative of Jacob and Esau, I think that if I'm picking anyone based upon merit, I'm picking Esau. Jacob's a scoundrel. It's literally what his name means. And so if it's based upon good works or bad works, I think quite clearly we would have to say that we must go with Esau. And then it's not even the bad works because I think many of us might find ourselves sitting here and thinking, oh, well, I'm excluded from the calling and election of God because I have been so wicked. It is interesting, isn't it, that he pays close attention to not only good works, but explicitly states bad. Your bad works do not revoke the calling and election of God, because it's never been rooted in you in the first place. The calling and election of God is rooted in and of himself. Now, the reason this is excellent news is because we would disqualify ourselves. Let me help you. Sorry, back up. You've all disqualified yourself. We all sit in the very same place. We violated the law of God. There is nothing lovely in us. And if he was taking into consideration our good works to merit the calling or our bad works to demerit the calling, then no soul would be elect. There would be no stars of the sky or sand of the seashore. But remember, dear saint, we turn our attention back to four. What does it so clearly say in verse 16? This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Guaranteed. Why? Because it rests on grace. The calling of God has always rested upon the grace of God. And this is the most wondrous news for us. For if it were based on lineage, or if it were based on works, whether good or bad, then dear saint, we would be a largely hopeless people. And if it were just based on physical descent, then we would have to look at God and say, your word has failed. But we know this is not the reality. The works of God, the promises of God, all come through spiritual realities, grace-filled realities. Now, in conclusion, I wanna lay this out for us. I wanna give you a couple of ways how the word of God has not failed, and then we'll close very first thing, Paul's first argument, the word of God has not failed because all true Israel obtained it. All true Israel obtained it. I will never give way on this. All those who are the elect of God, all those who Abraham saw in the sky that night have actually obtained it. Those that Israel that is within Israel, they have obtained it. A great illustration for this, I'm humoring Don here, is in the Exodus. Who enters the promised land? Is it all those who left Egypt? No, it isn't. It is a particular people commonly called what? The children of God. And to give you another citation of this rather simply, in verse eight, what does it say? This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise. They enter in. Was God faithless to deliver the people out of Egypt? No, he delivered. He was faithful. But there were a particular people that he was going to deliver into the promised land and he brought that to fruition. True Israel has obtained it. Every single one of them. 
Now, going further, the word of God has not failed because all true children of Abraham obtained it. And if we take Paul's understanding of being a child of Abraham, meaning those who have received the grace of God in Christ have trusted in a righteousness not based upon works, but based upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all the children of Abraham have obtained it. Those ones, again, that he looked up and saw, all of them have obtained it. Now, the reason this should birth great confidence in us is because we not only take this to comfort our own souls, but we take it to comfort us in regard to the word of God's success and proclamation. Every single one of them will be born, not just physically, but they will be born again. They will be brought into the family of God. And that leads us to the last. The word of God has not failed because all the children of God have obtained it and they will obtain it. God will not suffer a single one of his elect to not attain the promises of God. His word has not failed. And as we will see, this is so important because we don't want to move past this and essentially destroy in totality the marks of national Israel. The reality is that from this point forward, what you will see is Paul elaborating on and building the wonderful tree that we find in Romans 11 and saying, God's purpose of election is of every nation. Jew is in that tree according to the flesh. Gentile is in that tree, according to the flesh. But let me tell you, we have a name for them. The name is the Israel of God. It is his church that he is building. And as we see him build his church based upon his promises, we go forth knowing that that wonderful tree that he has laid bare before us, its nourishment flows from the man Christ Jesus. No one will ever be grafted into that tree apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the promises of God, I would refer you back to verse five of chapter nine, the end of them, the conclusion of all of his promises are, do you see, do you know, do you believe in the Christ who is God over all? This is the identifying mark of all the church of God. Let's pray together.